If you'd open your Bibles to Romans 9, uh, we're finishing off a couple of tailing uh, uh, passages there from last week, and then we'll be mostly in 10, uh, chapter 10 today. Uh, so Romans 9, starting at verse 30. One of the more helpful pages on a website, at least in my humble opinion, is what's called the FAQs page, right? The, the frequently asked questions. And I like that because it prevents me from having to call somebody and wait on hold and listen to bad music for someone who will be minimally helpful, right? It's nice to have a page of questions that others have already had and already asked, and maybe there I will find my answers. And the Apostle Paul throughout the book of Romans uh, seems to do a masterful job at basically giving a big doctrinal truth, big doctrinal point, and then he files it up with what we might call frequently asked questions. He anticipates the questions that will come from this difficult doctrine or this challenging truth. And then he sets about answering those for us. And so uh, because of that, the book of Romans sort of feels like the FAQs of Christian doctrine. And uh, today's passage is no different. Uh, having laid down some really challenging uh, truths from last week at the beginning of chapter 9, uh, here, uh, and, and I'll, I'll remind you, uh, chapters 9 through 11 really are one unit. Ideally, would be taught all together, except that would be one long church service, and it would be a little much for all of us. So we're breaking it up. But please, as good Bible readers, I would urge you over the next couple weeks, sit down and read chapters 9 through 11 all together in one sitting a handful of times so that you will have a sense of the whole argument here. It's one of the ways we, one of the quickest ways to become a better Bible reader is to read bigger chunks all at once, okay? And so I would encourage you to do that. But last week, we looked at chapter 9 here, and, and Paul's teaching of the sovereignty of God over the salvation of mankind. That God has graciously chosen to save some sinners, and we call that the doctrine of election. And that God's election of some to salvation is not based on any goodness or merit or effort or striving or desire in mankind. That God's election of some sinners to salvation also, it doesn't undermine his justice. We might ask about that understandably, and yet God is not obligated to save any sinners. Pure justice would just leave all in the state of judgment but that he rescues any is grace. And uh, this leads us, and in fact, if we protest that, that sort of shows maybe one of two errors that we're making. Either we have a misunderstanding of our own sinful condition, or we have a misunderstanding of God's sovereign uh, position. And so that tends to be the mistake that barks back and asks uh, about the justice there. And so the conclusion is that any of us who are in Christ, should be humbled. There is no room for any pride, but rather we should rejoice that God has been gracious to us. And in case someone might say, I, boy, Eric, I don't know if you got that right. I don't know if that all sounds exactly right. And I'll say, you know, this book is infallible. This, this person is fallible. And my wife will give a hearty amen to that. You can tell she was in the first service because didn't, you didn't hear it. I'm fallible, and I may have some aspects wrong here, but it sure seems like his illustration that he follows this up with kind of brings it home. 
He goes back to the patriarchs. He looks at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we recall Isaac, the child of promise to Abram and Sarah late in their life. And then from Isaac and Rebekah, they have the twins. But even before the twins were born, God had already sovereignly decreed which one he would choose to bless all the nations through. It was before they had done anything, good or bad. He chose counter to the customs of the day. He chose the younger. He chose counter to the merits in the individuals. Esau looks like the better dude. Jacob was the trickster, a conniver. And so we see the point that Paul is illustrating here is that God was sovereign over whom he chose then, why he chose them, and who he would bless through them. Our God has always been sovereign over salvation and choosing of mankind, and he always will be. Or as it is said, our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. Um, So Paul is basically directing this teaching generally um, to Gentile believers in Rome who maybe have gotten a little prideful, a little swagger, maybe looking down a little bit upon uh, the Jews and sort of feeling pretty good about themselves. And in light of that swagger, it seems that Paul basically kind of taps them down a little bit and says, hey, humble yourselves here. Uh, God has really favored Israel in the past, and he seems to have a really wonderful plan for them in the future. So that seems to be what Paul is, is getting at. All in all, he is instructing that any Christian, any Christian, Jew or Gentile, ought to rejoice in their salvation and see it as the work of God alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. If we are in Christ, we should be humbled by his sovereign grace and rejoice. So that's what, if you weren't here last week, that's what you missed. That's the sort of one-page version of it. That brings up some very logical questions, though, right? One of the difficulties that comes from the doctrine of election is that it could, it could lead us to a kind of fatalism, Right? If God sovereignly chooses some to salvation, not by merit, not by desire, not by effort, but purely by his sovereign choice alone, if that's what he does, then why bother? Why bother being his witnesses? Why bother proclaiming the gospel to anyone? Why bother trying to win some people to Christ through good reasoning and sound arguments and apologetics? Why bother praying for someone to become saved? Isn't God just going to do what God is going to do if he's sovereign? And if that's the point, if that's the case, then what's the point? Why bother trying to save others? And this, so this becomes sort of a big question that Paul takes on, and it sort of will will answer it at the very end, but there's building blocks that he sets up to take us to that conclusion here. So we'll start in chapter 9 at verse 30 and then work our way there to that uh, conclusion to that question. Verse 30. What then shall we say? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it, not by faith, but as it were, by works. So here's our first point. Um, 
we see that Paul affirms what I'm going to call the great inversion here. First of all, that salvation is received by grace through faith. And the corollary to it is this, that trying to earn salvation by works results in failure. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, you hear something like this, and that sort of just offends our Western North American sensibilities, our things, our, our values such as hard work and responsibility, self-determination, and these kinds of things. And so I'll invoke St. Augustine here in his comment, God being God offends human pride. Get used to that, Okay. And I, I want to just think about grace here for a moment. It is one of these wonderful things. It is so massive, so powerful. It carries us. And yet at the same time, there's a fragility to it. That is, if we misuse it, it is destroyed. Um, there, are, there are plenty of things that are sort of inherently destroyed in a wrong-headed approach to them. Uh, for example, as soon as you brag about humility, you've lost it, right? Uh, just last week, uh, Andrew and I were talking in the back during church, as we sometimes do. And um, I was talking about, uh, we were talking about books on humility, and I said, well, I've read two. I didn't like either of them. I think I could write a better one. <laughs> so there you go. Humility gone. Um, as soon as you try to pay for a gift, it ceased being a gift, right? As soon as you try to earn grace, you've negated grace. As soon as you try to merit salvation from God, you have pushed it out of reach. And one of the clear points in all of the New Testament by the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It lays it down pretty clear there. And this is essentially what happened to Israel, who tried with zeal, unfortunately, to achieve salvation by law-keeping. And this is the error. This is something I hope that however long you've been here, if you've been with us a few months or years or decades for some of you, I hope this is something that I will have left an imprint on your heart on, that you would remember this. The law was never meant to save. The law was meant to show, to show. The law was meant to be like a pair of glasses. I think for those of you who were here last week, you saw this, but I'm going to use it again. Like a pair of lenses, through which we would see. We would see through these. We would see the holiness of God, the high standard of God and of his righteousness. And by that, we would see our sinfulness and our true condition, our wretched condition. And we would see our need for a savior, one outside of us who could obey the law for us. The law was never meant to save. It was meant to show, to be a lens through which we would see these things. And unfortunately, Israel took the lens and didn't look through it, but looked at it. They fixed upon it as the means itself, not to what it was meant to show. Um, so the law, good as it was, never meant to save, meant to show us our need for a savior. And Israel um, blew it by focusing and fixating upon it. Salvation cannot be achieved. It has to be received 
by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself illustrates this. He taught about this uh, in uh, one of his parables. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the FAQ here would be something like this. Are you saying that salvation cannot be achieved by law-keeping? Are you saying that the Jews actually missed it by virtue of trying to achieve it? And that the Gentiles actually received it because by faith they trusted in what Christ did for them? And the answer to that is, yep, that's what we're saying. And the problem for Israel is that they would not admit their inability to keep the law. Uh, You think about the old adage, admitting that you have a problem is the first step, right? Whether that's in substance abuse or whether that's in an addiction to sin, which we all have. Admitting you have a problem is the first step. And unfortunately, Israel would not admit their inability to keep the law. Any law that cannot be kept provides no salvation at all. We need one who kept the law for us. And we also see that this isn't like an afterthought of God or uh, a surprise to him or just the creative uh, makings of, of Paul here. Maybe Paul's just attaching a new religion onto Judaism, one that he likes a little better. In fact, what we're told is that this was God's expectation all along. The prophet Isaiah said that this kind of reaction would occur where he says, see, I lay lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. But having to admit that they needed Christ and that they couldn't achieve salvation by the law was what they would not do and therefore missed salvation. So the second point here is this. We have to come to God on his terms and not our terms. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Let me just pause here and notice. Paul, who teaches on election, prays hard for their salvation. So take note of that. Verse 2. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So Paul starts off by just expressing his admiration really of the zeal of Israel and their desire to please the Lord. But unfortunately, they went about it the wrong way. They came to God on their terms, not on his terms. And then Paul makes an interesting statement here. He says, he says that Christ is the culmination of the law. 
Um, and that word, culmination, in the NIV translation, the 2011, which I'm using, uh, the Greek word behind that is telos. And uh, if you, how many of you have a different version than I'm using this morning? You're not going to get shamed. It's okay. I'm just curious. It helps me. Okay. So if you have the ESV or the New American Standard or the King James Version, all of these fine translations... They have a different word there than culmination, don't they? They translate the word telos as end. So in in your translation, it would say Christ is the end of the law. And the word end, just like telos here, can sort of have two different meanings or two different understandings. And I want to flesh this out a little bit so you can see what's going on here. Um, We could watch a movie and get to the... The last bit and the last screen would say the end, right? So the concept there is termination, conclusion. Uh, but there's another way the word end can be used. If, if you're familiar, it can be used to talk about purpose or uh, intent. Like if you think about the Westminster Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So in that sense, it's the, the trajectory, the purpose, the intent, the goal, the aim. And I actually think the 2011 uh, NIV is a better translation of that word here because I think it fits the flow of the whole text. And that's why it's good to have both a a version like the ESV or NAS and the NIV because the NIV is going to look at the whole section. Those other translations will look at word for word. They're both good. Both have strengths and they're both valuable. But I think this one captures the flow more accurately. So I think what Paul is saying is the intent of the law was to point us to Christ. This is the same point that he makes in Galatians 2, uh, which is sort of a corollary book to Romans. It's like the shorthand of Romans. Where he says, so the law was our guardian or our tutor until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. We're no longer being tutored, so to speak. So Christ is the resolution to the issues that the law created for us. When the law came, it told us that we were sinners. It showed us that, in a sense, we had an inability to keep it. Nothing wrong with the law, but what it showed was our brokenness, that we were flawed, that we had a sin nature, and that we needed one who would obey for us. And so um, to kind of demonstrate this, Paul provides what I'm going to call a law review in Israel's history here. Now, I have to do this section with a few caveats up front. Verses 5 through 8 here are incredibly difficult for me personally to untangle. Okay, um, And to be honest with you, if I was sitting in a class and the Apostle Paul was the professor, I'd be saying, uh, Professor, can you explain that a different way, please? Or can you connect the dots here? I see what you've said, but I don't know how you've tied these, these points together. Uh, In fact, there's a commentary for nerds like me, and it is a commentary on the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. It would have been helpful this last week. I don't have that one yet, but I think I'm going to order that one. But this is one of those passages where I think of also what Peter says in his second letter. Peter says about Paul, he says, hmm, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. I like that verse. I especially like it this week. So basically what Paul does is he reaches back into the Old Testament. He grabs two passages, one from Leviticus and one from Deuteronomy. 
And essentially what he's going to do is he's going to present two kinds of righteousness. Righteousness A and righteousness B. And I want you to listen for that as we read through the passage here in, in Romans. So Romans 10.5. Moses writes about this righteousness that is by the law. Righteousness A. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says do not... Uh, says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. All right. Like I said, it's, I think these dots, you can see the dots, but how they connect are a little challenging here. So I think what we have, first of all, is righteousness A. Righteousness by law-keeping, if you will. So it's kind of like Paul says, oh, you want righteousness by law-keeping, but will you actually like what you get? If you want righteousness by law-keeping, you have to keep all of it. Every bit, perfectly. If you've failed at any point, you've failed at the whole thing. You want righteousness by law-keeping, you got to keep it all. And this, of course, is an impossibility. Again, not because there's something wrong with the law, but because we have a sin nature as a result of the fall. And then there is what we'll call righteousness B. This is the righteousness of another. Righteousness that is obtained by faith. And we've already covered this ground in Romans that we Christians who have repented of sin and trusted in Jesus have a given righteousness. So righteousness A and righteousness B. Now, regarding this passage in Deuteronomy and how Paul's using it here, here's my best attempt at this. I hold this open-handed. I may have this a little bit wrong, but this is my best attempt. In Exodus, that's where we receive the law the first time. That's where Israel gets it. Mount Sinai, God gives the law to Moses, and he disperses it, right? So they get the law there, and the law of Moses is repeated in Deuteronomy. That's sort of the second giving of the law, almost like if you think about renewing your vows, right? This is almost God and Israel renewing their vows, so to speak. And this second giving of the law, the gist of God's message to Israel in these verses here, and if you want to turn to it, it's going to be in Deuteronomy 30. But the gist of these verses is, Hey, the law was clearly given, clearly stated, very accessible, and it wasn't too hard for you to do. That's the gist of what we find here. So this is Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea and get it, and proclaim it to us, so we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, for I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws, and then you will live and increase, and the, law, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. So you see the tone and the tenor there. It's, hey, the law, I wrote it down for you. I gave it to you. You have it. I just told do these things, don't do these things. It's right there for you to do. God's got to obey it. I've revealed it to you. And oh, by the way, I've even written it in your hearts 
so that what you find here corresponds to your own conscience and instincts. That's the overall tone here. And I think what Paul is doing is he's arguing from a lesser to a greater. In other words, even the Mosaic law was clear and user-friendly. Right there for you uh, to, to use to pursue righteousness. But how much more is the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, user-friendly and right there for the taking? A list of things to do and obey or a savior who has obeyed the list and done it for you. A righteousness of achieving without any failure, a righteousness that has been achieved and we simply receive it by faith. So I think he's arguing from a lesser to a greater. We are given, we have a given righteousness here. So that brings us to what would be the next logical FAQ, frequently asked question. How does one lay hold of this given righteousness. Verse 9. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These are some of the most wonderfully reassuring words in all of the New Testament. The simplicity of access to the gospel. What is it that we must do? Call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth and we will be saved. And I hope what you're feeling here, what I'm trying to show is there's this very interesting tension. We have the election of God of those whom he will save. And yet we have this wide open call. If you call on the name of the Lord, he will save you. And I'd like to sort of illustrate this with a remote. Um, I think I did this last week too. But uh, I know how to use a remote here, even to click the slides along. Most of the time I get it right. I can use a remote at home for my television. Uh, And I know how it operates. I know what button to push to make it do the thing I want it to do. But I don't know how it works. I don't know the mechanics and the electronics behind the scenes. I really don't know. And I think it's really kind of wonderful what God gives us here. In a sense, he tells us that he has elected some to salvation. On the other hand, if you hear his voice, if he is working upon your heart and you repent and believe, you will be saved. Both of these are true. He has given us operational access to a very user-friendly gospel. And I think we might have many, many questions about the sovereignty of God, the election of some to salvation. It may bring up the question of God's love and his justice. But really, all of these things are outside of our control. Those are in the domain of God. But what he has put right in front of us is this user-friendly operational access. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You leave the election bit to God, that's his business. You use the response bit to yourself, that's your business. And that leaves us to this sort of final point that we've been building towards, which is this. 
The sovereignty of God to elect some sinners to salvation does not nullify the responsibility of mankind to respond to the gospel and for those of us who already have to proclaim that gospel. God asks us to be active in these things. And so we're basically uh, cautioned to resist against fatalism here. Um, I love the passage in Hebrews 3.15 where it says, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. We're called upon to respond. Look at verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The amazing thing is that the sovereign God, who is sovereign over election and salvation of mankind, uses us in the process of redeeming people and bringing them to himself. And how that works is up to him. Um, Now this all, I think, brings up one big question that I haven't dealt with yet. Last week, a number of you came and talked to me after the service, and I had some really good conversations. I love doing that. But here's the question. If God is sovereign over these things, do we have a free will? Don't we have a free will? And if we have a free will, how does that work with his sovereignty, right? So here's, don't we have a free will? That's the question. What's the answer? Yes. Yes. We have a free will, but it's in disrepair. It's busted. It is deformed and distorted because of the fall of mankind and the sin nature that is now in us such that we won't, of our free will, choose God. We won't, with this broken free will, choose to do the right thing. We won't, because of this distorted and marred free will, choose to do the right thing for the right reasons. And we call this the depravity of man. Uh, Again, I'll call upon... Uh, St. Augustine, for this one, he's got a great quote for almost every sermon, doesn't he? It was by the evil use of his free will that mankind destroyed it and himself. That was a great summation there. So let me, let me paint a picture for you to kind of bring this home. Um, you're a college student. For some of you, you're going way back in time now. You're a college student. Semester's over. It was a hard semester. It was a long semester. You're taxed, okay? And you are looking for some R&R. You're looking for a road trip. And so you get your automobile, and you think, I, I want to go somewhere far away. I want to drive to Baja, California. And you have this vehicle, so you have the freedom to do that. Uh, but here's the problem. Uh, your car is in a serious state of disrepair. Your transmission has been slipping for like three years. Uh, You have a four-cylinder car, but unfortunately only two of them are working right now, so it's running quite rough and a little underpowered. Uh, Your brakes are shot. Your tires are treadless and dry rot. They're going to go at any time. The radiator is constantly leaking. The serpentine belt is squealing like crazy and frayed on both edges all the way around. 
your two-cylinder car is burning a quart of oil a day, and you have no headlights. And I probably should have started with this also. You don't have a steering wheel. <laughs> so you're free to set out on your journey with this vehicle, but you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it down your street, right? The only way that vehicle is going to make it to Baja is on the back of a flatbed that somebody else drives. Someone will need to carry you there. Yes, we have a free will, but it is marred by the fall and by sin, totally distorted and not functioning property. We will not choose God in and of ourselves. We will not choose to do right or do it for the right reasons. We need God to change our hearts. And this is what Jesus taught. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up in the last day. The gospel of grace uh, that we might receive, a given righteousness achieved by Christ offered to us, is received by repentance and faith. And the Bible still gives us the responsibility to respond. Today, if you hear his voice, it's because he's working on your heart. But if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts and respond to him. And if by God's grace, we have been rescued already and are Christians because of his work in our lives, then we are to be his spokesmen, his ambassadors, his witnesses, and the beautiful feet that bring that good news to others. The sovereignty of God does not generate fatalism. And look at the Apostle Paul if you want to see it. One of the principal teachers of election and sovereignty in the New Testament is Paul. And it animated him to give his life, devote his life to witness, especially to sharing the gospel with the Gentiles and to praying ardently for the salvation of all. The doctrine of election does not lead to fatalism. It should animate us for the witness of Christ. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, thank you for Paul and his diligence that even where some of his arguments may be hard to understand, <coughs> his life of service to you shows clearly what he believes. Yes, you're sovereign. Yes, you've elected some to salvation. And so we who are already across the line of faith had better be busy proclaiming the gospel of grace that all who call upon the name of the Lord might be saved. Lord, I pray right now here if there's anyone who has not yet repented of sin and received the righteousness by Christ that comes through faith, that you would lead them to repentance now, that they would call out to you, that they would find you, that they would know the joy of being reconciled to a holy God, that they might know the peace that comes from that, of a life as his child and a future to come. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>